Shall we pray together before we begin? Father, there's great joy in my heart tonight as I approach this glorious subject of the second advent of Jesus Christ. Because I know, Lord, from the excitement in my spirit that what we're talking about is not far away. And Father, I want to thank you. The day of our redemption draweth nigh. Hallelujah. Oh, Father, I know that it's joy for us, but it spells great doom for the world. And Father, how I pray that our hearts might be challenged tonight, that we should really seek to serve you and to lead as many as possible into the glorious kingdom of Jesus Christ. Father, we recognize you tonight as the source of all things, the one who feeds the sparrows, the one who clothes the lily, and Father, the one who is the source of our life and the source of creation, even tonight. Oh, Father, I pray that the fact that you are the center of all things is going to shine forth from tonight's study more than anything else. And I pray, Father, that we might all be prepared here to bow the knee to you, that we should recognize you and you alone are righteous. You and you alone have justice in your hands. And Father, when we study your wrath tonight, I pray we might know it is the righteous and true judgment of a righteous and true God. Amen. Father, that indeed our own morality should be still and that even our own morality should bow the knee before you. Father, just lead us and guide us very clearly tonight in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 Well, I did something that perhaps wasn't quite fair at the end of last week's Bible study. I left people suspended in thin air. For those of you who were here, do you remember that we'd studied the military campaign and the military strategy of this man that we call Antichrist? And we'd seen that over three and a half years um, there was rebellion in the Middle East, rebellion finally in the whole world, and that Antichrist had had to intervene into the arena of Middle Eastern affairs. And we saw how his army actually uh, went up to the king of the north, down to the king of the south, into Libya, down to Ethiopia, and then finally ended up with his headquarters in Jerusalem. And where we ended, we had armies all round Jerusalem and armies all round the valley which dominates northern Israel called the Valley of Esdraelon. You remember this valley which... Uh, is, uh, moves inland in a southeasterly direction from about the port of Haifa today. And we saw certain armies. We had the army of the king of the north. We had the armies of the kings of the east. We had the remnant of the army of the king of the south. And then we had Antichrist armies. I suppose I could call him tonight the king of the west. But we had them all gathered round Jerusalem, all gathered round this valley of Esdraelon. Now tonight we're talking about the second, second advent of Jesus Christ, but it is the events of Armageddon which actually um, lead up to the second advent of Jesus Christ. So let's understand now uh, exactly what happens. As soon as the armies come to the area of Jerusalem, warfare begins. They take one look at one another and they start fighting. The domination of Jerusalem is the important thing. I imagine that uh, the king of the uh, West, or Antichrist, as we've called him, actually dominates most of Jerusalem, as he has done for three and a half years. But then the other kings and the armies of the other kings move in and start battling for domination down in Jerusalem. 
up in the valley of Esdraelon, um, it is quite obvious from what we know that it is the kings of the east and the king of the north who actually begins the battle up there. We know that simply by studying the geography of things. If you remember, the, we call the whole valley the valley of Esdraelon, but Armageddon or Harmagiddu is the part of the valley on the southern flank of Esdraelon. All right, right along the southern rim of Esdraelon. Now, what that shows us is that it's the armies from the north who actually come down and move rapidly across the valley to attack the positions of Antichrist, whose army is waiting in the Mount Carmel range. And Antichrist goes down the hill, and a battle begins. The battle, of course, with the type of armaments they had, is a long-drawn-out affair. There is tremendous carnage, tremendous loss of life, and one can imagine the whole of the area around Armageddon absolutely swallowed up with blood. It is really bad. We don't know how long it lasts, but we do know that the Lord intervenes in the middle of that battle. However, it's the fight around Jerusalem I want to concentrate on tonight because it's the fight in Jerusalem which is the trigger, as it were, for the second advent of Jesus Christ. Down in uh, Jerusalem, Antichrist has dominated the scene for three and a half years. Do you remember when we studied the woman clothed with the sun? We saw in Revelation 11, at the time we were discussing Moses and Elijah and their role in the tribulation, we saw that an angelic architect is sent out by God. Do you remember this? And he goes out with his measuring rod and God says to him, now go and measure the holy place and the people therein, but, he says, don't measure the outer court. He says, the outer court and the rest of the city of Jerusalem have been handed over to the Gentiles and they will dominate it. That's what we read. And this is a picture of Antichrist dominating all of Jerusalem. As the armies gather on every side, uh, the headquarters, of course, is near Mount Zion, as the armies gather here, so the believers who have been led to the Lord by Moses and Elijah begin congregating in one place. And which place do they begin congregating in? Why, in the temple area. The area where the architect could go and could measure. And all of these people, we don't know how many there are, there are probably thousands, all gradually move in to this part of the city as the fighting completely dominates the rest of the city. By the way, they're being encouraged by wonderful promises in the Word of God. Wonderful promises like Matthew 10, 20, which says, He that endures to the end shall be saved or, or shall be delivered, as it means. And they're saying to one another, Now, I know the battle looks bad. I know they're encroaching upon our territory. I know they're all the way around us. But listen, we're not all going to die. Some are going to endure to the end. And God's promised us, those who endure to the end, we're going to be delivered. And so let's look for the deliverer. And they start encouraging one another just in that type of fashion. Let's turn uh, to our Bibles and let's have a look at Jerusalem in the middle of a battle and let's see the description that is given. Now I suggest you mark the book of Zechariah, which is where we're going first, with a piece of paper or something because we'll be coming back to Zechariah. And let's start off in Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah, of course, the second to last book of the Old Testament just before Malachi, and we're beginning verse 1 of chapter 14, and the subject is Jerusalem. All right, Jerusalem, a large city, 
The temple area, a small part of the city. And in these days, the temple has been rebuilt. And this is where all the believers are gathering. Verse 1, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil, which means, of course, your wealth, your wealth shall be divided in the midst of thee. In other words, the armies are coming in, and when they see things that you own, they're going to take the things that you own. Verse 2, For I, says the Lord, will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. That's what we saw last time, just how God did gather all nations to battle around Jerusalem. And the city shall be taken, so that it's under the control of these armies. And look what it says, and the houses rifled. Now that means looted and ransacked. So as soon as they see a house, in they go, smash the windows, smash the door down. They go in, they take anything that they want from that particular house. And the women ravished, which is of course rape. The women, the defenseless ones, are injured. And half of the city shall go forth into captivity. Half of the population of Jerusalem is removed. Why? Because these Jews are always a problem to the armies that invade. So as soon as they capture some people, they send them out of the city to try and get rid of them. But the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So half the population remains in the city. And so the battle carries on. It's hand to hand and street by street fighting that's going on. And there are the believers. Now, the wonderful thing is this. God is not going to allow any of those believers to be touched. And the time comes, imagine, say, the believers are in this area here. The time comes when the battle reaches the very doors of the area where the believers are. And it is at that point, with the believers about to be damaged and to be interfered with, that Jesus Christ begins his second advent. It is the cries of these believers stuck in Jerusalem that actually triggers off the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how important they are as far as the Lord is concerned. And notice in verse 3, having talked about the destruction of Jerusalem, look what it says, verse 3, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And with Jerusalem almost captured, with just a small area containing these believers, the Lord himself intervenes and he starts to fight. And by the way, when the Lord starts to fight, all those who've been fighting around Jerusalem suddenly realize they've bitten off more than they can chew. They suddenly find their foe is much bigger than they thought he was going to be. Actually, in Zechariah 12, the Lord does warn them. It's all quite fair. In Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretcheth forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Now verse 2. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling. The word trembling means staggering or reeling. I'll make Jerusalem a cup of staggering and a cup of reeling unto all the people round about when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. They'll take this cup, which they thought was a delight for them, a, a thing of refreshment for them, so that they could go out and show how strong they were and actually be benefited by the bounty. And what's going to happen? As they drink the cup, they'll start staggering because the weight of it is going to be so tremendous when the Lord rises up. 
By the way, what is that verse? It's simply a statement, really, of Genesis 12, 1 to 3, isn't it? I will curse them that curse your descendants, Abraham. I'll curse those who curse the Jews. And here is the, the worst cursing that there could possibly be, and it is here that God intervenes directly. Verse 3, And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people, a stone that's crushing them as they try and carry it, all that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. And at this crucial moment, the Lord himself intervenes. All right, now our main subject tonight is the second advent of Jesus Christ. Now at this point, many, many believers go wrong. Because many believers think that what happens now is suddenly Jesus appears in the sky, you know, and all of a sudden uh, everyone starts looking up and they see Jesus coming. Those people have not understood the grace of the Lord. Before judgment comes, do you remember the principle that we've seen? Before judgment there's always grace. And even here, there's a time of fantastic grace. God moves sovereignly. He moves to protect the people. He moves to stop the battles, but also to preach the gospel. Now, to understand what I'm talking about, we've got to go to a very interesting prophecy in the book of Amos. So turn back a few books and go to the book of Amos, chapter 8 and verse 9. And here we'll see what directly precedes the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Amos chapter 8 verse 9, we have a verse which is sometimes called the sign of Amos, or the Amos sign. And this is what it says, verse 9. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, says the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon and will darken the earth in the clear day. Now this is an amazing prophecy. At noon, dead on 12 o'clock in the land of Israel, the sun is suddenly going to be darkened, and it will suddenly become night. Now immediately the question is, can be asked, well, when actually is this referring to? Now from scriptures that we'll see in a moment, we'll see that actually it refers to the second advent of Jesus Christ. But isn't it interesting that something like this also happened when Jesus died on the cross. Do you remember that when Jesus died on the cross, it was nine o'clock in the morning when he was actually um, nailed onto the tree. And for three hours in front of all the people of Jerusalem, Jesus uh, suffered in the, most dreadful, in the most dreadful way, suffered from the abuse, from the catcalls, suffered from Satan and demons uh, being thrust upon him, suffered in every physical way, in every spiritual way, uh, and every soulish way, really. And for three hours, people were allowed to gaze upon it. But at midday, the sins of the whole world were put upon his shoulders. And do you remember, he cried out at midday, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And at that moment, Father, the Father and the Holy Spirit, you remember, turned their backs upon Christ on the cross. And at that very instant too, at noon, the sun suddenly became darkened. And for three hours, no one was allowed to look at the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, you may ask, why did that happen at the time that Jesus died on the cross? And to answer that, do you remember what we studied when we dealt with the subject of what really happened at Pentecost? Do you remember that there God was ready to establish the kingdom? And to show that he was ready, he poured out the Holy Spirit as he promised. But he didn't fulfill the signs that he had promised. And we saw when we studied that, that what God was saying was, look, I'm ready. The reason that the kingdom's come in is not my fault. It's because you have rejected the Messiah. And here, when Jesus is dying on the cross, we have the Amos sign. But instead of the second appearing of Jesus Christ occurring, or the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ happening, here is Jesus, the King of the Jews, dying on the cross. And the sign of the darkness is to warn the Jews that they had rejected their Messiah. Now, despite that, at the second advent of Jesus Christ, there is going to be darkness which precedes the appearing of the Lord. And this darkness, if you read through passages connected with the second advent, always appears in the same passages as the second advent of Jesus Christ. Can I just show you some passages, and then I'll explain why it's going to be dark. All right, turn first to Matthew and chapter 24. Matthew and chapter 24, and I'm going to begin verse, I think, verse 26. You remember on the east side of Jordan, we have believers who are in the hills of Moab, Ammon, and Edom. And Jesus warns them, and he says, look, many people are going to say that the Christ has appeared. Don't you believe it, he says. Uh, Verse 26 of Matthew 24, Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chamber. Believe it not. And I sort of imagine Antichrist sending vans out with loudspeakers on, saying, oh, Jesus has arrived, you know. And the believers in the hill saying, well, we don't believe that. And Jesus goes on to say, no, when I come, you're all going to see it. Now, verse 27. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. He will appear in the east, and he will descend towards the west, and you are going to see him. You don't have to be told by a loudspeaker it's going to happen. You will see it with your own eyes. And in verse 28, For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together, which gives a lot of Bible believers an awful lot of trouble, and it's simple as pie, of course. And it's simply this, that in a desert area, uh, you can look up and the, the sky will be completely clear of vultures and of any birds of prey. But if an animal dies in the desert, do you know what happens? All of a sudden, these black birds start appearing all over the sky and start swooping down upon a carcass. And what he's saying is, look, you know yourselves, you're all desert dwellers. You know, you don't, no one has to come and say, oh, there's a carcass out there. You know full well there's a carcass out there. You just look up into the sky and there are the birds descending upon it. He said, so it's going to be when I come. No one will have to tell you. You just look up and you'll see the signs that, that I'm coming. That's what it's going to be. All right? It has another meaning, which we'll see a little later on tonight. Verse 29. Now look what it says. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened. There's the darkness. Before the return of Jesus Christ. All right? And the sun, the sun shall be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light. And the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. 
Now, what this means is this. There will be total darkness on the face of the earth. Now, the majority of human beings have never experienced total darkness. Sometimes we say, oh, isn't it dark tonight? But there's still some light around. If there were no light at all, we wouldn't be able to see anything. We wouldn't be able to see the person next to us. We wouldn't be able to see our own hand in front of our face. If there's a little bit of light, we can see something. But do you realize, on the day when Jesus Christ returns, there is going to be total, and I mean total, darkness on the earth. Absolutely total. In fact, I believe that all electric lights are going to fail. All candles will not, you will not be able to light one. No matches will be able to be struck. No tinderboxes are going to function. Absolutely nothing is going to give forth light. And do you know why? Because Jesus is going to appear as the light of the world. We today have not accepted just um, how important the role of Jesus is in the universe. People today poo-poo it. People say the sun is the source of all life. You hear that very, very frequently. That's nonsense. The Bible says it's nonsense. Do you know, even in the book of Genesis, you begin with it being nonsense. Do you know, in the book of Genesis, a light appears on the first day of creation. And light is there on the second day of creation. And light is there on the third day of creation. And the sun is created on the fourth day of creation. Isn't that interesting? Who is the light for the first three days? I'll tell you who the light is. Jesus himself was the light. He was the one who sustained all life. Now, once the sun was created, then, of course, the Lord didn't show forth as the light. But he declared clearly in John 8, I am the light of the world. Now, at this particular time, before the second advent of Jesus Christ, all light is going to be extinguished. Or, I tell you this, no luminous watch is going to even blink at you, right? No luminous sea creatures are going to give anything. Every light is going to be extinguished. There will be total darkness over the whole earth. And what this means is that when Jesus appears, do you know how he's going to appear? as the light of the world. And suddenly, the whole of the universe is going to be filled with light. I mean, there won't be astronauts buzzing about in those days for the reasons we saw last time. But if there were, do you know that none of the universe would appear black? It's all going to be absolutely luminescent. It really is. There's going to be light everywhere. And all around the earth, light is going to be seen. It will start off slowly, and then it will gather in intensity. And that is what is meant when we get to verse 30. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And every eye is going to see him. Every eye is going to receive of that light, which is the Lord himself. Now that's what the darkness is all about. So that it will highlight the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this total and complete darkness on the face of the earth. When an eclipse of the sun happens today, we sometimes think it's dark. It's nothing compared to this darkness. I wonder how many people here have experienced complete darkness. Is there anyone where you haven't been able to see anything at all? It's going to be like that all over the face of the earth. Let's see in, uh, just two more passages where we have the return of Jesus Christ and darkness mentioned. Turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah right, and 13, Isaiah chapter 13, 
And look what it says. Isaiah 13 and verse 9. Behold, he says, The day of the Lord cometh, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. And he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it, as we'll see when we get on to study the millennium. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. You see that? Darkness and the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, go back in your Bibles to Ezekiel, Ezekiel 32. Let's see a similar thing. Ezekiel chapter 32. And then we'll see the grace of God in this darkness. Verse 7. And when, this is Ezekiel 32 verse 7, And when I shall put thee out, I will cover the heavens, make the stars thereof dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give her light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over thee, and set darkness upon thy land, saith the Lord God. This total darkness enshroud, uh, sort of acts as a shroud over the land and over the whole world. What effect do you think it's going to have on the battle? Well, you don't have to look too far to see the effect that it's going to have. Everything is going to stop dead, right? The believers in Jerusalem are going to be totally protected by a complete cover of darkness. Remember, these people are in a strange city and now they can't see anything. They can't see the map. They can't see where the wall is. They can't see where the curb is. I'll tell you, they're not going to go very far. And the others who are up in Israelan, they don't know whether they're going north, they don't know whether they're going south, they don't know which way they're going. They're going to be totally disorientated. And most men in those circumstances are just going to sit down on the ground where they are and they will wait. Do you know what it does to animals? Animals will react in an entirely different way. We saw last time, if you remember, that the military warfare will be what I said I called downgraded. And the use of animals is going to be very important in these battles. Well, this is a time of darkness and a time of earthquakes. And even today, if there's an earthquake, you can normally tell when an earthquake's going to happen. You find animals doing very, very strange things indeed. And in this period of total darkness, the animals are going to panic. They'll be whinnying all over the place. They really will. And I'll tell you this, they are going to be trying to get out of the, the reins. They're going to be running loose just wildly. They won't know where they're going. And in this time, there's going to be such noise from all the animals, all the horses rushing about. They're going to, of course, uh, destroy themselves in their efforts, as well as destroying many, many people that, which they will trample underfoot. And that's going to be the effect upon the animals. Actually, again, the word says it. Go back to Zechariah, right? Zechariah 12. And this is what God tells us. Zechariah 12 and verse 4. In that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment and his rider with madness. This type of madness doesn't mean to say they're all going off their heads. This is the type of madness that comes from fear. Right? They're going to be absolutely filled with fear. 
and I will open mine eyes upon the house of Judah, and will smite every horse of the people with blindness. And there is what, what, he is say, what is he saying here? He's saying, I will look down on Judah, and then I am going to smite every horse with blindness. Total darkness comes down. They won't be able to see where they're going. I imagine that this noise and pandemonium and chaos is going to last about half an hour. And then some horses will have rushed off into the hills or into the plains. Others will be lying dead in the streets. And total silence is going to descend upon the world. In the silence that descends, men will have nothing to do but to think. And the wonderful news is the day of salvation is still open. They're going to sit there. We don't know how long this darkness is going to last. It might be a day, might be just a few hours. It doesn't matter. Salvation takes a split second. And they're going to be there, some of them with armaments, some of them perhaps sitting in what I can only describe as war machines because I don't know what they're going to look like. And some will just be by themselves in the streets. Others will be in troops, but there'll be no movement at all. And the Holy Spirit will be ready so that anyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ in that silence and that darkness is going to be saved. The wonderful thing, of course, for us is that the Jews are going to be saved as well in this time. You see, most of the Jews will know enough of their Bible to realize what this darkness is all about. And they'll all say, what's that Amos sign? Didn't it say at noon that some will go down? It's happened. Therefore, Messiah is coming. And in the land of Israel, thousands and thousands of Jews are going to be saved in this darkness. Do you see the grace of God? I'll tell you, he's so wonderful. These, if anything, are brands plucked from the fire. They're going to be gloriously saved in that split instant of time when they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's going to be wonderful. By the way, if you go down to verse 8 and, and to the end of the chapter, let's read. Here are people being saved. In verse 8, we see that it is the believers in Jerusalem who trigger off the second advent. In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You see? He moves in to defend the believers in Jerusalem. And he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David. And the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me, whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Sitting there, they realize what they have done to Jesus Christ, and repentance breaks out in the land, especially among the Jews. Oh, it's a thrilling passage, this. Look what happens. And in that day, there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, as the mourning of Hadad Rimmon. Hadad Rimmon, by the way, was the famous time of mourning when the great king Josiah was killed. Josiah was actually killed in Megiddo, which is rather interesting. And when he died, the whole land wept for him. And it became a, a byword, you know, the great weeping of that day. And here it's called the mourning of Hadad Rimmon in the valley of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn, every family apart, mean, which means every family together, every clan together. Right? 
the family of the house of David by themselves, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by themselves and their wives apart, the family of the house of Levi apart and their wives apart, the family of Shimei apart and their wives apart, all the families that remain, every family apart and their wives apart. Now they're the Jews getting saved. Not all the Jews are saved, but a huge number of them are. All right, what about the Gentiles? They're also saved. We don't know too many details about it, but we find some reference to it in the book of Joel. All right, go therefore to the book of Joel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. All right, um, before we get on to the passage, let's see the darkness again in Joel. Turn to Joel 2 and verse 1. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. This is the equivalent of an air raid siren. All right, this is what they used to do. If there was a battle going on, or if the enemy was coming, they used to climb up into a tree, get hold of a trumpet, and blow it as hard as they could. So that's what he says. Go on, blow the trumpet, sound the alarm. Troubles ahead, you Jews. The inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. A day of darkness, he says and of gloominess, a day of clouds, and then it says of thick darkness, which is literally abnormal darkness, the type of darkness you've never experienced before. Over in verse 10 of Joel 2, here it is, the earth shall quake before not them, but him. It's a reference to Jesus Christ. The earth shall quake before him, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining, and the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very strong, for he is strong that executeth his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very ter terrible. Who can abide it? Now there it is, the darkness. And over in Joel 3 then, in verse 14 and 15, look at this. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. And this is a reference to the armies sitting in the Valley of Esdraelon, which is sometimes, by the way, also called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And there they are sitting there, and God says of the multitudes, multitudes in the Valley of Decision, they have to decide now, is Jesus Christ king or is he not? The sun and the moon shall be darkened, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. All right, some are saved. Do you know what the others do? This is almost unbelievable. The others start blaspheming the name of Jesus Christ. As they sit there, they pray for the mountains to fall on them and kill them. Right? They start blaspheming the God that has done this to them. And in fact, those who are going to be believers, they are, get saved and are believers. But those who are going to be unbelievers are even more confirmed in their unbelief. And it is at this point, when every person who will be saved has been saved, that then... The Lord Jesus Christ is going to appear. Oh, very dimly at first. I don't think this is going to be rapid. I think this is going to be gradual. And they'll begin to see just a pinpoint of light in the distance, you know. And soon the light is going to fill every part of the sky. But still, it's going to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow in intensity. And as this light begins shining, the unbelievers, then all the armies, the king, the army of the king of the north, the, 
the kings of the east, the king of the south, and of course Antichrist, do you know they suddenly decide, as soon as light dawns, that they're going to forget their differences, forget the battle against one another, they are now going to unite to fight this foe who is coming down from the sky, Jesus Christ himself. Now, isn't that brilliant? That's exactly what the Lord planned. They thought they were there to fight one another. They had a bit of a fight, but now they combine against the Lord. Having been given the time of grace, it has now come to an end. The day of salvation at this point has drawn finally to its end. Jesus Christ should have destroyed the whole human race when Adam fell, right? That would have meant the death of, of two people, you see, Adam and Eve. He should also really, if there's any fairness at all, have destroyed the human race just after Jesus Christ died on the cross in his grace. He has left the day of salvation for another 2,000 years. But his grace comes to an end. And here, as Jesus Christ appears, the day of salvation is actually closing. And the sides have made up their mind, and Jesus appears. To see Jesus appearing, right, let's go to Revelation 19. All right? Revelation 19, which most of you, of course, already know, I hope. And let's just read it. It's, it's fairly obvious. And Revelation 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven open. This is John who's seeing the second advent of Jesus Christ in vision before it occurred. It's again like a videotape that he's watching. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, an unrevealed name. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And why dipped in blood? Because he's going forth to judge and to fight. And verse 14, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And here we are, the church of Jesus Christ, as well, of course, as the elect angels. And notice, we're not clothed in red. We're not going to do any fighting. We already have the victory in Christ, which is lovely. We're clothed in white, and we remain white. Jesus himself is going to receive all of the glory. Right? And then verse 15, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. And, of course, one of the reasons that God has, has created vultures, they're his dustmen of the desert, right? They're the ones who clean up the earth after a killing. And he gathers them together. He says there's going to be tremendous slaughter down here. Why? Because he's going to sit in judgment on all those who are alive at the end of the tribulation. And those who are unbelievers, they are going to be removed from the earth. How? They are going to die physically. And there will be capital punishment at this point. Jesus himself is going to put them to death at that point. They will not be judged at this point. They'll be judged at the end of the millennium. But they are going to die at this particular point. 
All right? Verse 18, That ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast, Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army, and I'm going to leave it there. And there they are, they're all gathered, and Jesus is coming down. Now, what's the marvelous thing? He comes down over the Arab lands to the east of Israel. He comes from the east and comes down towards the west. Now, that's absolutely thrilling. And as he comes down, which group of mountains does he pass over? Why, the mountains of Edom and Moab and Ammon. And can you imagine the feelings of those believers, the believers who've been saved in the first three and a half years of the tribulation? They see him coming. They look up and they see him coming. And I tell you, I'm very thrilled about this because the day is coming when we're going to see them looking up at us. Hallelujah. That's wonderful. We'll be coming down with Christ and we'll be waving. Hallelujah. It's finished. Three and a half years in those mountains. We're coming for you. But he doesn't stop on the mountains. He comes over. And as he comes over, the believers in Jerusalem look up, right? They see all the war, uh, the armies being gathered together again. And they, they have to look up to Jesus Christ. And what do they say? They say the, some of the most wonderful words, right? Actually, do we have time? I think we just have time. Go to Isaiah 63. And let's just see the words that they say. Here are the believers stuck in Jerusalem. And they see Jesus coming over Jerusalem. And he's coming from the east. And look what they say. The words of the believers stuck in Jerusalem. They're not going to be stuck for much longer. Their deliverance is nigh. And they say, who is this that cometh from Edom? They're, he's appearing over the mountains of Eden with dyed garments from Bosra, that's to the east, this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. And then, right at the end of verse 1, Jesus replies, here's his reply, and I put this in inverted commas, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save, that's who I am. And then they say, Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? How come you're, you're, you're red as if you've been treading the grapes? And Jesus answers in verse 3, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger, and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. These people who had seen the rapture of the church, these people who had received signs galore that, that they were serving the devil and rejecting the Lord, he says it is time for the judgment. And if today is the day of salvation, as sure as today is the day of salvation, so the day is coming, which is the day of judgment. And people think it's not coming. They are terribly wrong. And the reason there's judgment is this, that the Lord is not only love, he is love. 
He's also absolute righteousness and absolute justice. And that means where there is sin, there has to be the judgment of sin. People who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ receive the forgiveness of sins because Jesus bore the punishment on his own body on that cross. But those who reject, they will have to bear their own punishment because they've rejected the only means of escape. Now here's Jesus coming right down and he lands. Now what's he going to do? Well, he's going to restore the earth, yes. But before he begins, the very first thing he does, he's got to rescue the believers in Jerusalem. That's the first thing he does. And how he does it is absolutely brilliant. And of course, it's in the Bible. So turn back to Zechariah and back to chapter 14 where we see it. All right, Zechariah chapter 14, I may have got the verse wrong there, never mind, verse 4 it is, Zechariah 14, 4, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. Now you remember, we have the temple area, you have a valley down by the temple area called the Valley of Kidron, and on the other side a hill which is called the Mount of Olives. And when Jesus returns, he lands on the Mount of Olives. Praise the name of the Lord. That's where he's coming. And what happens? Right? Which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof towards the east and towards the west. Now what does that mean? Here's the Mount of Olives, let's say. And it means that there's going to be a break in the Mount of Olives aligned east-west. All right? And to make it clear which way it's going to come, Look what it says. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof towards the east and towards the west, and there shall be a very great valley. Half of the mountain shall remove towards the north. So there it goes. And half of the valley, shall, half of the mountain, I beg your pardon, shall remove towards the south. So the north bit moves north, the south bit moves south, and what's the result? There's a valley in between. There it is. And this valley is right by the side of where the believers are, which is thrilling. Incidentally, the ge professor of geology of Stanford University, USA, has, his name is uh, uh, ba Bailey Willis, is his name, Professor Bailey Willis. He's actually found a fault line going east-west, right across the Mount of Olives. Now, whether Jesus uses that fault line or not is immaterial. If there was no fault line there, it would still cleave in the midst, praise God. But a valley is going to be formed. And look what it says. Half the mountain removed to the north, half of it towards the south, and verse 5 is messed up in the King James. As we're reaching this crucial point, the King James gets a little preposition wrong. Oh dear, oh dear. Look, it says here, and ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains. But it's not to, it's through. And what it says is, and ye shall flee through the valley of the mountains. What's going to happen? The believers will see the Mount of Olives opening up and a valley through, and they're going to rush down into the valley and out of Jerusalem. It's going to be their means of escape from the area, the temple area, where they've been trapped. And down they'll come, crowding into the valley, a bit like the Red Sea deliverance. And right through the valley out of Jerusalem. And once every believer is removed, then the law begins judging Jerusalem. He cannot judge a believer, and he will not judge a believer. Everyone goes out, and his judgment begins.
All right? You shall flee through the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. Now, Azal is on the Mediterranean coast. And actually, this valley stretches from the temple area right the way through to Azal. And we'll see when we deal with the millennium why it reaches the Mediterranean coast. It's a very important reason. All right? Yea, ye shall flee like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come and all the saints with thee. Now, we don't know the root of the valley. We haven't the foggiest idea as far as the root of the valley is concerned. But we do know where it begins. It's from the Mount of Olives. And we do know where it ends. It's at the place called Azal on the Mediterranean coast. Right? That's it. And notice it says this earthquake shall come. And it says it's like the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Now, that earthquake was well known to the Jews. In fact, Amos uses it to date his prophecy. His prophecy was written two years before the earthquake. And it's the same earthquake. All right? And then it says, And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. All the holy ones, whoever they are, they'll be returning with the Lord. And of course, in Jude 14, the prophecy of Enoch was that the Lord would return with thousands of his saints. Hallelujah. You see? Now there is the return of Jesus Christ. And in verse 6 and verse 7 you have something interesting. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall be not clear nor dark. And that's a mistranslation. It simply means that in that day there will be no light. That's what it's an expression of. Does the NIV give that? That's absolutely correct. There shall be no light at all in that day. And then look what it says, verse 7. But it shall be one day. The word one day is, the one there means unique. It's going to be a day like no other day in the whole of human history. It will be a unique day which shall be known to the Lord. Not day, nor night, not light, not darkness, he says, but it shall come to pass that at even time it shall be light. In other words, it's not going to be lit from the sun, but when Jesus Christ comes back, there'll be light everywhere, but not like our day, and so not like our night either. It's going to be total light from a different source altogether, a unique day. He's trying to express something that is inexpressible, you know? And he says, and the interesting thing is, of course, the light doesn't switch off as the clock go carries on. And so you expect evening to come. And why? <coughs> it's still light. Why? Because the light source is on the earth now. Absolutely amazing. Now, it's complicated, but that's what he's trying to express at this particular point. You see? And it shall be a unique day, which shall be known to the Lord, not day, not night. But it shall come to pass that at even it shall be light. At evening time it shall still be light. And the Lord sits there as the light of the world, and he enters into continual judgment on the earth. Now, Jesus is back on the face of the earth. He has come again into human history in a human form. And there he is. Now, he's got to clean the earth. He's going to sit in judgment upon believers and unbelievers, upon the Jewish believers and unbelievers, and upon the Gentile believers and unbelievers. And that's an, a subject for another time. But where I want to end for tonight is on the first judgment that he makes as soon as he's back. Who would you deal with first? 
I know who I deal with first in the tribulation. It will be the satanic trinity. And does he do it? He does it. Every single one of them. Praise God. And so let's end for tonight in Revelation 19 again. I've had to jump around in the Bible because I've wanted to develop it slowly. In Revelation 19, verse... Well, I begin verse 19, although we've read it just before. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. All right? And you know there's no warfare at all. As soon as Jesus comes down, it's the end of the battle. It's as easy as that. He gathers them then for judgment. And look what happens, verse 20. And the beast was taken, this is Antichrist, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that have received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone. That's their judgment, and the sentence is carried out there and then into the lake of fire for the both of them. In verse 21, we then have the removal of the unbelievers from the earth, and the remnant was slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. You remember that in Matthew it says that the day of the coming of the Lord shall be like the days of Noah, right? Some taken, some left. And do you remember when we dealt with this that we saw clearly that all the believers gathered into the ark, the ark was shut up, and then the unbelievers died on the face of the earth. All the unbelievers died. So it is going to be here. All the believers continue to live on the face of the earth, but those who are unbelievers, when they are judged to be guilty, they are put to death, and through their death, they are removed from the earth. And finally the last one of the satanic trinity. Antichrist dealt with. The false prophet dealt with what happens to Satan. Well, chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And verse 3, and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And when we come to the millennium, right at the end of our discussion on the millennium, the devil is going to reappear for a short season, and we will see why when we get to that study. The satanic trinity is dealt with. Two of them already judged and in the lake of fire. The other one, the master of them all, locked up for one thousand years and at last peace is going to come upon the face of the earth. Jesus Christ at last victor in front of the whole world and he and he alone is going to be exalted. That is the second advent of Jesus Christ. All right, next time I'm going to uh, leave for the moment the order of things and I'm going to deal with how the political situation of the tribulation comes into existence when we deal with the subject does Russia have a future and when we, after we've dealt with Russia we'll then continue from this point and we'll see the history of the earth as it uh, carries on with Jesus as Lord and King over all and actually with his centre his headquarters here on planet Hallelujah.
का फ्लैश